Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Informal labor has long made up a large share of India's economy, shaping how the country shops, looks, and sounds. But that's changing pretty quickly. Our correspondent visits a market in Mumbai to see a disappearing India. And one stereotype about the French is that they're effortlessly slim, with haute couture draped across lithe frames. We look at some obesity statistics that show the reality is different and getting more so all the time. But first... This weekend, South Carolinians were treated to an air show unlike any seen before in the Palmetto State. On a sunny Saturday in Myrtle Beach, locals watched as two U.S. fighter jets bore down on a high-altitude balloon. We probably watched it, I don't know, maybe about five minutes and then started seeing some jet trails coming from the west. And one in particular all of a sudden seemed like it was coming, coming fast and coming straight towards the balloon. Then, a launch. At almost 60,000 feet, one of the two jets fired a single Sidewinder short-range missile, aimed at what the Pentagon said was a Chinese spy craft. And then all of a sudden, you've seen the balloon just go, and the top of it was just like confetti. Um, Moments later, the high-flying inflatable was no more. Gosh, it was almost like a moving cloud coming down. And then the smoke was gone, and it just started slowly going down further out towards the ocean. Superpower surveillance isn't new, but the nature of this latest incident has exercised hawks from Washington to Beijing. So while the strike has brought the balloon's week-long journey to an end, the consequences of its incursion into U.S. airspace may last a lot longer. On Thursday, the Pentagon disclosed that it was tracking a high-altitude Chinese balloon, which it said was being used to gather intelligence over the U.S. James Bennett writes our Lexington column. China insisted the flyover was an innocent accident, that it was a civilian weather research balloon that had been blown off course. The Pentagon completely rejected that claim. And by Friday... Politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, were calling for action from the Biden administration. Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, announced that he was going to put off a planned visit to Beijing. Concluded that conditions were not conducive for a constructive visit at this time. The presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. And on Saturday, an F-22 fired a missile at the balloon as it was over the Atlantic off the east coast of the U.S. and brought it down. 
Joe Biden called that mission a success. But since then, Republican lawmakers have been strenuously criticizing the administration, and even Democrats are calling for some more action from the Biden administration. Why? What have they been saying? What do they want? Well, the Republicans are really saying that Biden acted too slowly in response to this threat and that he, in fact, invited it by showing weakness towards China. The president says that he ordered the military as early as Wednesday to shoot the balloon down as soon as possible. But, you know, the balloon stayed up for another four days and continued to traverse the United States because of concerns that its payload, which apparently weighs as much as two or three buses, might have harmed somebody if it had fallen to the ground. But kind of across the spectrum of Republicans in the House, in the Senate, and declared and prospective presidential candidates have been beating up on Joe Biden. Donald Trump demanded on Friday in all caps that Biden shoot down the balloon posting to his social network. And Mike Gallagher, who's the Republican head of the House's new bipartisan China Select Committee, said the incident made the U.S. look, quote unquote, weak and flat-footed on the world stage. We're talking about defending our sovereign airspace. And I don't think the Chinese Communist Party would hesitate to shoot down an American asset that was in their airspace. And indeed, they've- he said that allowing the balloon to stay airborne risked U.S. military secrets. Is that criticism fair, do you think? And do we know what intelligence the balloon was able to gather? It's still really unclear. It's possible that the cleanup of the debris, which the U.S. military is now undertaking, may yield some answers to that. But in the meantime, American defense officials are saying that they assess the intelligence gathering capabilities of this balloon is very limited. There are all sorts of theories about what the Chinese may have been up to here. Some think that China was out to flaunt a new intelligence gathering capability, or else some are claiming they simply wanted to embarrass the American government. Joe Biden is about to give his State of the Union address on Tuesday, and this is really inconvenient timing for him. Still others are wondering if the balloon's purpose was not actually to snoop with cameras, taking pictures of American missile installations and so forth, but actually to suck up digital data. So, James, what has Beijing said about the incident? They did express some regret for the, what they called the balloon's unintended entry into American airspace. And it's possible that it was simply an accident. You know, the timing is peculiar because it was right in advance of this planned visit by the Secretary of State. The quick reaction of Beijing, the fact that Beijing expressed some regret for the incident has led some American analysts to think that that may be, in fact, the reality here. But they have also accused the U.S. of overreacting to this. And beyond the official line, the political atmosphere in China is frenzied as it is now in the U.S. Communist Party media outlets are blaming America for ratcheting up tensions. And the government is saying that it reserves the right to take further action, but it remains to be seen what that might be. So what happens next? Where are we now? What do we have to look forward to this week? Well, Politico has reported it's possible the House Republicans will move on Tuesday to pass a resolution 
criticizing Joe Biden for not acting more quickly to deal with this balloon. That would be on the same day as the president is to deliver his State of the Union address. The Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, said Sunday that the full Senate will get a comprehensive briefing on China in the week ahead, including information about its surveillance capabilities, research and development, and its advanced weapon system. You know, it's no secret that China spies on America and that America spies on China. And it does seem like this balloon had pretty limited capabilities. But the very public nature of this and the length of time it's taken to resolve it has just substantially increased the pressure on the Biden administration to be seen as tough here. And I think it's really shown the risk that this kind of incident, which is probably a relatively small security breach, can spiral out of control. How do you evaluate that risk at this point? Do you think this could escalate further than a war of words? I doubt that this particular incident will. It doesn't seem like it's on that path. But it seems what we've really learned here is that something like this could easily escalate out of control. And the hope, I think the constructive thing that might come out of this would be that leaders on both sides would recognize that risk and China and America would see they need ways to insulate their relationship from what are probably inevitable mishaps like this and miscalculations that may just be Chinese clumsiness. But we've also seen, I think, clear evidence of just how politically intense The subject of China has become in Washington with lawmakers on both sides not wanting to be seen as anything but incredibly tough on China. And all of this is happening against the backdrop of presidential campaign that's already underway. Uh, We saw another all but announced presidential candidate, Nikki Haley, tweeted out that Biden is letting China walk all over us. You know, John, the days the politicians on both sides would say that politics stopped at the water's edge ended a long time ago. And it really restricts the Biden administration's room to maneuver in trying to calm the situation down. All right, James, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. If you come to Mumbai, the one place people in Mumbai will tell you is just terrible. It is the chore bazaar. And it's because it's dirty And it's loud, and all the stuff in it is just junk. Tom Easton is the Economist Mumbai bureau chief. And 
it's hot and people say you can get ripped off and if you park a vehicle there, it may be in pieces by the time you leave. And then they might say to you, but it's being redeveloped and it's disappearing. And what a horrible loss for Mumbai if the Chor Bazaar isn't there. So it is a place held with the greatest affection, even if it's constantly talked about in the most disparaging terms. I'm in front of a sewing machine company, which has units by Fiat, singer from the beginning of the last century, Merritt. There's a person nearby who bakes sweet potatoes and nuts, which are roasting. The street is blocked a bit by um, goats and by cats and by the occasional motorcycle. So I went there because I wanted to understand the nature of what economists call the informal market and how that's changing. Now, what economists call the informal market is the market that isn't accounted for in precise statistical terms. And nothing in the chore bazaar is really accounted for in precise statistical terms. Transactions still go in cash, but they are in some ways still the heart of the Indian economy. That is a car that is being dismembered. And you can hear someone is taking a metal spike with a huge metal mallet and they're just slamming away at the door. I guess there's a market for car doors and they've just acquired one. So as wonderful as the informal market is and all these hawkers and their ability to be unbelievably responsive to all sorts of demand, this sort of employment, informal employment, is often seen as a synonym for impoverishment. India's informal employment rests between something like 60 to 80 percent of its population. Now, most of that is in farmers, but a lot of it is in these street vendors. And so there's always been a question on when will India, as it develops, shift its employment from these informal to formal employees. And some of the statistics that have come out recently have suggested that it may be happening. For example, there was one really interesting note that came out in the first six months of the fiscal year, which is the participation in what's called the government provident scheme. And it's kind of like a pension fund went up by 35%. That's a remarkable number. In absolute terms, by Indian standards, it isn't that high. It's only another 9 million people. But you just have to understand not that many people were included in the formal employment of India in the past. So to be part of the Provident Fund means that, you know, you're being counted by the government. You're probably paying taxes. You have an employer who's not only doing something for your old age, but they're probably paying some form of health care. And it says something about the nature of businesses, too, because to be a contributor to the Provident Fund or to be in that scheme, the company you're working for has to have more than 20 employees. So if you look at most of these hawker stands, they have somewhere between, you know, one and maybe 10 employees. You know, India is just awash on these tiny little businesses. And the provident number suggests that there may be some consolidation going on. There's some growth in larger companies. And the hope is that this reflects a growth in both income and benefits and affluence for the Indian population, because that's what's happened in other countries around the world. More car engines. There are so many car engines here. Excuse just me. Uh, tell me, what are you doing here? What do you want? So I'm doing a... Uh, and uh, where are you living? And I'm doing a podcast uh, on, the podcast, okay. on the economy. Okay, okay. Comedy? On the economy. 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 Okay, okay. Yeah. You, you can explore like this stores. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, what are they doing with this car? This is a chor bazaar, and uh, yeah. all, all of things is cheap product. It's really very cheap. cheap. Yeah, really yeah. cheap. So they're taking all the. You, you can any one product you can uh, here purchase any cheap amount. So any part of a car. Any part of part of the car, part of the car, cars and many parts of this car you can buy now, cheap amount. And what is your name? My name is Riyaz Sheikh. And do you work here? No, no, I'm not working here. I I purchasing some product for this year. What are you purchasing? Uh, a horn. A bike horn. horn. Yeah. For a motorcycle. For a motorcycle, yeah, right. So, with all the benefits, and they are real benefits, they don't come without a cost. You know all. Those things that people complain about in the chore bazaar that they really love, the noise, the innovation in a small way that happens, the tremendous effort of every person who works there, really the skill of all the people who are tearing things apart and putting them back together. I mean, it gives India its character. It gives it a sense of energy and excitement and and a kind of uniqueness in everything that you see, a quirkiness, and to see a world that is just very highly productive. Anodyne, and actually, if you're thinking of anonymous manufacturing facilities, that world is quite dystopian and alienating. And in all the ways that it should be pushed and encouraged, and it has benefits, these are all true. It comes with reasons for regret too. And one day, you can already see the the chore bazaar being eaten up. You see this blue steel corrugated siding all over the place. That's where. Stalls have been torn down, and new buildings are going up. If you enter the chore bazaar when you come in, there are many, many stalls that are occupied by barbers. And once you go inside on the rubble of the new building sites, you see just chairs where some people are giving haircuts and shaves, and all they have for a barber shop is a stool on the rubble from the new housing development that has yet to be completed. And you know that that's just transitory. That barber will be gone. In, if not a matter of months, then a year or two, and you know the new barber shops may be more sterile, they may be safer, they may have better plug-in appliances, they may do hair coloring in a more sophisticated way, but I think everyone will be sad to see the old guys gone. There's a great deal of mythology surrounding the idea of the French woman. She's effortlessly chic. She oozes self-confidence, and somehow she's always skinny. The idea has even inspired the title of a best-selling book, "French Women Don't Get Fat." But look beyond the catwalks and glossy fashion magazines, and you'll find the waistlines are getting larger. Even in France, obesity is on the rise. If you look at the figure between 1997 and 2020, the share of obese adults in France doubled to 17 percent. That's eight million people. Sophie Peder is our Paris bureau chief. Now France's obesity rate is still well below that in America, which is 40 percent. But the trend worries French public health officials, and the government has now set up a task force on obesity under a professor of nutrition in Lyon called Martine Laville, and it will report back in March. So it seems like a fairly striking rise for France, anyway. What what are the demographics of it? 
Well, you won't see this necessarily on the streets of Paris, but obesity in France is most marked amongst those on low incomes, and it's regionally very much concentrated in places like the ex-industrial northeast of the country. According to a report by the French Senate, the obesity rate among manual workers in France is nearly twice the rate for those who have managerial jobs. And one explanation for the income gap is that in those areas, and for reasons of income and budget, there is a diet very high in processed food. And this sort of poor nutrition is one reason for it. So there's a geographic element, there's a job type element, but what about gender? How's the split between the genders? Well, obesity in France is more prevalent among women. The rate for French men is still on average one of the lowest in the European Union. Now, that may surprise listeners, but in general, obesity is more prevalent among women globally. And this is due to a variety of factors, some of them biological, things like hormones or pregnancy or menopause. And there are also sociocultural factors at play, including isolation from medical care that affects women more in France too. And that must be particularly hard in a culture where thinness is so highly prized. Well, this is exactly the issue in France. There is a celebration of, you know, the chic, slimline silhouette. And France has made an effort to try not to stigmatise those who do have a problem with obesity. It's banned the use of excessively thin catwalk models during fashion shows. There is quite a lot of pushback these days against what the French called grossophobie, which means fat phobia. In fact, the word is relatively new. It entered the dictionaries just a few years ago. But it was struck, for example, by the front cover of a magazine, Femme Actuelle, which is a women's magazine a few weeks ago, which featured Marianne James, who is a famous talent show judge. And she weighs 138 kilograms and was making the point that she was wanting to attack those who fat shame. But such images remain all too rare in France. And when the government reports back in March, it will be looking at how to both combat obesity and change the culture around it in the country. Sophie, thanks very much for your time. It's a pleasure, Jason, as always. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.